Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. We need to roll back the state. We spy on all of our own citizens. Our prisons are flooded with nonviolent drug offenders. If you want to know who America's next enemy is, look at who we're funding right now. Every single one of these problems are a result of government being way too big. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Part of the Problem. I am rolling solo for this episode. Rob is away on uh, AIDS-related business, so we wish him the best, and he usually has a full recovery with these things. Of course, me and Robbie the Fire Bernstein will be out in Zanies in Chicago at Zanies Comedy Club. Really looking forward to this one. These shows are all going to sell out, so if you want to come out, there's still some tickets available. They're probably going to be sold out within the week, so go grab tickets uh, uh, for Chicago live stand-up shows there's also a live podcast on sunday night uh live uh, stand-up shows friday saturday at one stand-up show sunday uh, and then a, a live part of the problem podcast so come check us out in chicago comicdavesmith.com for tickets uh and you can get all of our other dates and and the ticket links will be up there soon a bunch more stuff being added that will be up on the site in the next week so very much looking forward to that. Anyway, Rob's away, but I wanted to jump on because there's a couple things I wanted to talk to you good people uh, about. The first thing um, that that uh, I think is an interesting story I'm very happy about uh, and I thought was worthy of discussing is one Robert Kennedy Jr., who has officially jumped into the race for the presidency. He is running as a Democrat. Um, and he, there's been whispers about this. I think he had formed an exploratory committee, uh, um, uh, several weeks back. Um, however, he just made it official. Let's, uh, let's play a little, uh, short video clip of his announcement. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the democratic nomination for president of the United States. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now. Is threatening now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country to commoditize our children, our Purple Mountain's majesty, to poison our, our children and our people with, with chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs, to strip mine our assets, to hollow out the middle class and keep us in a constant state of war. All right. So there you go. There was uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, announcing he is running as a Democrat for the president of the United States of America. I got to say, I just think it's great that he's running. I, I really just think it's it's excellent. And there's a lot. Look, 
I, to be clear, he gave a speech. It was over an hour long. It was really good. It was thoughtful. Um, he w- it was in front of thousands of people who were very enthusiastic about it. There seems to be, I don't know exactly how serious this campaign is going to be. I don't know what type of uh, uh, results uh, Kennedy can, can actually get, and we'll see. He's got a few things going for him. Um, number one, I don't think there's going to be any other major insurgent candidacy challenging Joe Biden. Uh, I don't, we're not going to see a Bernie Sanders run this year. Uh, he's too old and too many heart attacks and too, you know, I I just, that's not going to happen. I also don't think, uh, Bernie Sanders would ever dare challenge, uh, a Democrat, uh, president, you know, Bernie Sanders had his moments when he was running in the primary against Hillary Clinton. Um, this was, uh, when, you know, Barack Obama was president, but his eight years were up and it was, who's going to be the next guy. Uh, then he ran against Joe Biden when, uh, when Donald Trump was the president, but he always, when he lost the nomination, you know, even when he was robbed of it, he always folded and endorsed the Democrat and always said, the most important thing is that Donald Trump isn't president. So he's not going to like challenge a Democratic uh, president while Trump's running against him or whoever the other Republican is, because Bernie Sanders isn't actually a dissident. Um, He falls in line with the Democratic Party. This is something very different. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is running against the whole system. And this was made really clear during, uh, you know, the biggest crisis of our our lifetimes during COVID. He was really, really opposed to the vaccine regime and the COVID regime and all of this stuff. And for, I I believe, for truly principled reasons. So Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. has been, he's, oh, listen, the guy's a Democrat, okay? He's not perfect. Um, He's always been like a... a, um, an environmentalist. He's always kind of believed in the uh, the climate change insanity. Um, although I don't know, I don't know exactly where he stands on the latest iteration of it. But do in doing his environmental work, um, he turned against vaccinations in general. And I, I don't know. I, I don't want to like paint with too broad of a brush. I'm not saying he opposes all vaccines, but he became very skeptical of many vaccines. This is before COVID, um, and he was talking a lot about this. And so then when the COVID vaccine came out, he was very opposed to the vaccine, very critical of it from very, very early on. And he's also really um, opposed to much of the military industrial complex state of forever wars. Um, He's very, very good on the Ukraine situation. And, you know, after all, this is Robert Kennedy's kid. Um, There's an anti-war streak in them. And so this is just a very interesting dynamic. You've got a guy um, who is is, um, got thousands of people very excited about him. He's getting a ton of attention online, um, which is, you know, these days is very powerful. Uh, The corporate press doesn't really have the ability to pretend he doesn't exist when the internet is, is, is getting him so much attention. And of course, the other major thing that he has going for him is that he's a Kennedy. And I know it's, you know, whatever, it's 60 years later, um, but there's still something, there's still some cachet uh, to being a Kennedy uh, within the Democratic Party and just within the country in general. And he's not like a Kennedy, he's not, you know, he's not like one of these like, oh, I married a cousin of the Kennedys and now I call myself Kennedy, like I'm kind of in this group somehow, like it's RFK's kid. It's He's a real Kennedy. Um that in itself builds in some credibility. It builds in tremendous name recognition. And there, there's some potential there. There's some potential there to maybe be a campaign that actually, um, that actually gets some energy going. I think there's, that could be vitally important, vitally important. Um, it also kind of, he has the ability, and we'll see how he does with this, but he has, let's say he has the potential to kind of uh, plant a flag in the ground for the non-insane Democrats for like who, you know, who here is a Democrat, but is not buying into the COVID insanity, not buying into the Ukraine insanity. That could be very powerful. Um, You know, a lot of 
there, I, I don't know exactly what the number is. I don't know if any of us know exactly what the number is, but it's not zero. And there's a lot of people, you know, Republican and Democrat, uh, a, a lot of it just comes down to like a tribal identity thing. Well, I've been a lifelong Democrat. My dad was a Democrat, so I'm a Democrat. Uh, same with Republicans. It's not all, you know, it, it doesn't start with like a philosophical belief and then go to, usually it just starts with like a kind of, this is what everyone in my town does. So this is what I do. That's not true 100% of the time, but it's true the vast majority of the time. And there are a lot of Democrats out there who are not on board with the insanity. And it's possible that he could really speak to a lot of them. Um, it's also possible that he could wake a lot of people up. Uh, I could see this president, this uh, presidential campaign getting a lot of, um, um, a lot of uh, grassroots support, a lot of young people um, uh, getting on board with him. And that, you know, for whatever you think about the political system, the sad reality in America is that most people in this country pay attention to the state of politics the most during presidential election campaigns. And so I just think it's, I think like the more people running who are talking and prioritizing some issues that really matter, the better. And this is not like Bernie Sanders' campaign. The, the Bernie Sanders campaign is like, even though he was right about a few things, he never prioritized them. And he always prioritized the things that he was the worst on. Like his campaign would be centered around Medicare for all and raising the minimum wage. It was never centered around actually opposing any of the wars or, or anything like that. Um, the, Robert Kennedy Jr. gave an, an over an hour long speech. And the main theme of the entire speech was the um, unholy alliance between big business and big government and how it is this alliance that is screwing over the middle class in America. And he's right about that. He's dead right about it. You know, there's, we have this system in America now where there's essentially um, there's socialism for the rich and the poor. That's basically the system in America right now. If you are if you are super rich or if you are poor, you you get socialism, and then everybody in the middle uh, is in some type of like sick feudalism, where you now have to like work with the burden of paying for the socialism for the rich and the poor on your back. That's essentially the 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 system we live under. Uh, it's complete corruption. You know, like yeah, if you're dirt poor, okay, you you can get some some you know you can get Medicaid or you can get some some programs. They suck. <laughs> it's not great, um, but there will be some level of socialism for you if you are in the billionaire class and you are politically connected. You can get trillions of dollars in in bailout money, um, in corporate giveaways and banker bailouts, things like this. But if you're anybody else, if you're anybody else, you just got to pay for all of that. You just got to pay for all of that before you start getting anything for yourself, which is why uh, so many Americans in the working class and the middle class, even the upper middle class, are essentially working half the year for the government. You're essentially in a state of being a quasi-slave for this system. I mean, I don't know, you know, like you can say the term slavery is hyperbolic or whatever, but... You, half of the year you are working and not getting the fruits of your labor. So, you know, maybe a, a, between a third and half of the year, I guess, depending on exactly what state you're living in and what uh, income bracket you're in. But it's it's pretty bad. And so he talked all about this, uh, talked a lot about the COVID vaccine, the war in Ukraine, all of this stuff. Really, really interesting Um uh, a really, really interesting candidate who's got a lot of important things to say and seems to be prioritizing the things that he's really good on at the center of his campaign. This is one of the reasons why I was much more attracted to Tulsi Gabbard's presidential campaign than to Bernie Sanders. Um, because even when Tulsi Gabbard was bad on a lot of things, it always seemed like what she prioritized in her campaigns, what she cared about the most were the things that she was really good on. She She was... That's what she wanted to run on. She wanted to run on the threat of nuclear war with Russia and how we should be walking away from that, the problem with regime change wars and why we shouldn't be fighting them. That was her reason for being there. Bernie Sanders' reason for being there seemed to be raising the minimum wage, which as we talked about on the last episode is one of the dumbest policy ideas. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr. is running on the corruption 
on, on trying to end the corruption. And that's a very important thing to raise awareness about, to, to help people understand. Now, look, I could, obviously, there are, he's not perfect. He's a Democrat, you know, he's not a libertarian. Um, but the, it's still good to be doing that. The, the issue, of course, with, um, with these types, I think what they don't understand is that when you have the, um, when, when you have what he calls this, this merger of, uh, corporations and, and the state that are kind of conspiring to screw over the rest of the country, the only answer to that is to drastically reduce the size and scope of government. That's the solution, like problem and solution in the same sense that if you don't want to get cavities, the answer is to brush and floss. It's just that scientific. That's the solution. At least that's the solution that doesn't screw over all the people even more. When you have a gigantic government, it's either going to be socialist or fascistic in nature. Those, those are basically your options. And the, you know, the, the idea that we could have a gigantic government that spends six, seven trillion dollars a year and nobody's going to lobby for power, nobody's going to attempt to wield that power is, is impossible. It's, it's, un, it's, it's uh, say unrealistic would be quite an understatement. The only answer is to reduce the power of government, essentially decentralize power as much as possible. All right, guys, let's take a quick moment. I wanted to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers professional counseling done securely online. So if you feel like there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, definitely check out BetterHelp. I'm a big believer in therapy. I've benefited from it in the past, and I know lots of other people who have. I think sometimes people get this idea that therapy is going to be like, you know, laying down on a couch and talking about why my dad didn't hug me enough, and that's not really what it always is. A lot of times it's just dealing with how you get from point A to point B, figuring out if there's something that's that's getting in your way, an impediment to your success, and trying to work on that. Whatever you are dealing with, BetterHelp has a wide range of counselors available for you. Plus, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional counseling, financial aid is available, and it's easy to get started. Once you sign up, BetterHelp will match you with one of their licensed professional therapists. You'll be able to communicate with them in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online, and BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so it's easy and free to switch counselors if you need to. You can send a message to your counselor at any time, and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule a week weekly video or phone sessions. So it's the perfect way to do therapy if you're busy and you don't have to go back to sitting in uncomfortable waiting rooms in the future. Just go to betterhelp.com problem and you can join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. New testimonials from users are posted daily. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Go to betterhelp.com problem. That's B-E-T-T-E-R H-E-L-P dot com slash problem. That'll get you 10% off your first month. One more time, betterhelp.com slash problem for 10% off your first month. All right, let's get back into the show. I'm not really looking at uh, Robert Kennedy's campaign and saying to myself, well, is he going to know what to do once he gets in there and he's president? It's more about what can this campaign mean? Um, what type of like, how many people could be moved and changed and have their eyes opened up by this campaign? Um, could enough people rally around someone like that, that it scares the establishment, that it makes them back off of some of the things that they might want to do? I think there's real potential there. I, I'm not saying this is a guarantee. This campaign could crash and burn. It could just not make that much noise. Um, but you see a guy who's a Kennedy who's giving, you know what I mean? Who's giving a really well, like this guy really knows his stuff. He's written books about this stuff. He's that, that speech he gave was very good the other day. Um, to see that is at the very least, very interesting. And I'm happy he's running. I hope as many people who are dissidents and, and are good on some of these important issues run as, as possible. Um, now the, you know, look, I don't, I don't mean to say this in a, um, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, there is a little bit of an issue with the fact that he has trouble speaking. Um, he's got like a medical condition and you probably heard there in the, in the clip, he's got a medical condition where his voice is very weak 
And that's that's just a little bit of an issue. I mean, the the gig of being a, a presidential candidate is essentially a speaking tour. I mean, there's other aspects to it as well. There's fundraising and there's networking and other things. But the real the the important thing, the thing that can get what we want to see out of this, which is like a, a, a mass awakening, um, a, a mass rallying, well, that part is a speaking tour. And I don't know if that's going to impact how effective he can be. I will say that he gave a very good speech the other day. And despite the fact that he's got vocal issues, um, I can't remember the name of his, he's got some condition that's like, uh, that's that, that causes that. Um, but despite those issues, it was still a very good speech. Jury's still out on, you know, whether that will hold him back or not. Um, but man, you know, I don't expect to see him on a debate stage with Joe Biden. But I would love it. I would love that because this guy will like he's not he's not doing what Bernie Sanders was doing. He is not like I, I want to insert my ideas to a certain extent, but I don't really want to confront you. I don't want to really have this battle with you. He is there and he is pissed off. The, the other element of all of this is like there's something that is he's a particularly red pilled uh, Democrat. And when what what I mean by that, you, you know, if everybody anyone doesn't know the analogy we always use is from the Matrix, um, the idea of being red pilled is when you kind of like um, you see things for what they are, and you see that the entire system is kind of a carefully crafted illusion that is designed to screw you over. It's not there to help you. Um, it's you, you know, there's so much of what we thought was just reality actually is all a lie, and th- what's what's actually going on is a very carefully crafted system to screw you over. That'd be my my definition of being red pilled. Um, he is a truly red pilled guy. Like he doesn't think that um, the COVID vaccine was like uh, had some side effects that people didn't realize. He doesn't think that the war has some unintended consequences. He's out there saying that this war is intentionally designed to try to pick a fight with Russia to see regime change in Moscow and that they're lying to the American people about it. He thinks that, you know, big pharma owns all of these politicians and these these news outlets and that they are poisoning our children, you know, for profit. And he's also a Kennedy. Like he's also well aware of who killed his family. That's a powerful thing. The guy, the guy who knows the CIA killed his uncle is not sitting there going like, well, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. You know, I just want to like get in here and insert some ideas and then go away. If he's on a debate stage with Joe Biden or even just running a campaign against Joe Biden, he's there to ruin him. He's there to like take him out. And that creates a whole different thing. Um, than almost any uh, presidential campaign uh, that I, you know, like Trump falls into that category. Um, I, I suppose Ron Paul certainly falls into that category. There's not too many others. There's really not too many others, particularly in the big two parties. Um, so that's something about this is just very interesting uh, and exciting. I hope he does great. Uh, open invite, Robert Kennedy. If you ever want to come on the show, I'd be more than more than happy to talk to him about all of this stuff because he really has been very, very good on some very, very important issues. I'd say the most important. Um, all right. So we'll keep uh, we'll keep watching that. The presidential election season just got a little bit more interesting. All right. Now, the other thing uh, that I want um, to uh, to talk about today is uh, so there was a, a, a recent debate between um, between Brad Palumbo and uh, Michael Knowles. And there was a, a clip of it. A, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Ben, who is a, a young libertarian, uh, he asked a question um, during this debate. Uh, I thought it was a, a very good question, and it was an interesting answer by Michael Knowles that I thought we would talk about and respond to a little bit. The, I have not watched the entire debate. I saw part of it. Uh, the debate was over, uh, it was, it was a debate on transgenderism and I think it was specifically about, um, whether transgenderism should be regulated by law, I believe was the question, uh, or the, uh, um, the resolution. 
So I, the, the reason I wanted to talk about this clip, um, Ben, uh, Ben shared it on, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought it was interesting. It kind of, it, in a way it was much bigger than just the question of, of transgenderism to me, it, it kind of spoke to more of like what the right wing gets wrong, um, and why right wingers really need to learn their libertarian lesson. Uh, that's been a major theme of mine over the course of the last few years. Um, and this is something that uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe talked about in the 90s. Uh, I, I personally think that there is, I think that libertarians need to learn their conservative lesson when it comes to cultural uh, matters. I think many of us have. I think that right-wingers need to learn their libertarian lesson, and it seems like far too many of them have not. And again, this was kind of the state of things with the paleoconservative movement in the 90s, and it persists today with kind of the, the broader right-wing movement in America today. Um, I, now, I, I know you can, by the way, when I say uh, libertarians need to learn their conservative uh, lesson when it comes to uh, culture, I'm not suggesting that you can't find libertarians who certainly have not learned this lesson. And I'm not saying that, um, that the social conservatives are right about everything. But what's important for libertarians to learn, and I think for the most part we have, if you look at the people who are like the most popular figures within the liberty movement, if you look at the people who uh, um, orchestrated the takeover of the libertarian party um, and, you know, the, the broader movement in general, the, most of them have kind of figured this out. And basically what they've figured out is that these kind of traditional values, um, things like... Uh, um, Community, religion, family, um, decency, morality, these things are important. And they're not, it's important to preserve them. Now, that doesn't mean that individuals who live alternative lifestyles don't have rights. That's the libertarian position that they, they do, that all people ought to have natural rights. But at the same time, you realize that if you're not going to have some type of internal governance, you're going to have external governance. And that if you don't have these, these um, kind of tried and true traditional norms, it's not going to be a situation that bodes well for a free society. That, I think, is something libertarians need to learn. Um, but I think right-wingers really need to learn their libertarian lesson when it comes to the role of government. And the fact that they don't is why they're destined to lose. That's, that's basically my perspective. It's why they continue to lose over and over and over again because they fundamentally do not understand this lesson. And even though they have their big political victories, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, you can look back to them across my whole life, but, you know, okay, in 2016, Donald Trump wins the presidency, Republicans control the House and the Senate. And where are we? Three years later, everyone's taking orders from Dr. Fauci about whether they're allowed to leave their goddamn house or not. It's like, hmm, what's happening here? not really getting any victories. Even when you get a victory, you just lose more. And what, you know, did it, did that, did it even like push the cultural, you know, um, pendulum back at all? I mean, you know, people were complaining about the woke shit in 2016. And now it's like, you know, I don't know, trans stripper shows with little kids. It's, it's at, by every metric, everything's moving in still in the same direction. So it, it's interesting that, you know, you would think right-wingers would stop and ask themselves, like, okay, what piece of this are we missing here? And I would submit that I think libertarians have something important to offer, an, an important insight to offer uh, for them. Anyway, before we get into this specific clip, I'd say my thoughts on, on the overall topic of where, um, you know, transgenderism being regulated by law I look the to me the libertarian position on this is all it's it's always built around the fundamental libertarian position which is like about the non-aggression principle. So what what is and is not aggression is kind of like what we would want to get to the bottom of. Now I personally think that um in in the same sense that we accept that children cannot consent and that having sex with a child even if it was like quote unquote consensual mean like even if you say oh the kid agreed to it that doesn't mean anything because <laughs> we go yeah they're not capable of consenting and you have to draw a line somewhere you know it's a little bit arbitrary exactly where you draw the line should it be 18 should it be 19 like oh, okay it's a little bit arbitrary but you recognize the line has to be drawn somewhere 
And to me, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say if children can't consent to contracts and to sex and to getting a tattoo and to, you know, all of these different things, um, then it's perfectly uh, legitimate to say they also can't consent, consent to hormone blockers or, you know, in the more rare cases to actual, um, you know, elective, you know, transition, transition surgeries. And to me, I just think that's completely reasonable, completely consistent with libertarian principles. Um, and so I'm fine with uh, puberty blockers and transition surgeries being illegal, being barred by law. Um, in fact, they should be. I'll say that. Um, as far as the the stuff with like um, like for kids, just like socially transitioning, um, you know, it's a little bit more debatable. Uh, certainly, it should be illegal for anyone to do it without parental consent. It's really right up there on the line of rubbing against a form of child abuse. Um, I don't know exactly how you would enforce that by law. I'm not sure that anyone has a great answer to that, but I think there's something debatable there. All right, guys, let's take a moment and thank our sponsor for today's show, which is Facet. Look, we all know talking about money can be stressful, overwhelming, and because of this, it occurs much less often than it should. Financial wellness is the key to unlocking your full potential and enriching your life beyond what you thought possible. Facet can help you not only start the conversation about money, but support you every step of the way so you can make financial decisions with confidence. Everyone should have a go-to financial partner to guide you through a continuous and ever-changing life journey. And Facet's planning goes beyond just retirement and investing. They'll advise you through every financial decision you face, things like real estate, tax mitigation strategies, understanding your benefits, and equity compensation. A Facet membership gives you access to unbiased, personalized, and actually affordable financial advice for every facet of life. A Facet membership includes your own dedicated CFP professional, the highest possible certification, plus a team of experts who use industry-leading technology and investment management strategies based on Nobel Prize winning research to help you make complex financial decisions easy and stress-free. And right now, Facet is offering a $500 Kickstarter to your financial wellness journey. They're waiving their $250 enrollment fee for new customers that sign up for annual membership, as well as offering $250 into your brokerage account if you invest $5,000 within the first 90 days of membership. If you're still wondering if Facet is for you, just take their free five-minute financial wellness quiz to unlock insights into your personal finances. Check out facet.com slash P-O-T-P. That's F-A facet.com slash P-O-T-P. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Facet.com slash P-O-T-P. All right, let's get back into the show. When it comes to adults, um, there's there's an argument that I would that I, I've said before, there, there's an argument that doctors shouldn't perform the surgery. There is a really strong argument for that, and there'd certainly be a very strong argument um, for um, like private medical groups to say like like we don't recognize you as a practicing doctor if you if you perform this surgery. The, the truth is that while there is some of this like scientific community, that will say, oh, we, th this is, you know, we need gender affirming care or whatever they call it. Um, there's no real evidence in the literature that this does anything positive for people. In other words, you know, you can look at things where like um, trans people have incredibly high suicide rates. It's very sad. I mean, incredibly high suicide rates. It's not brought down at all by the surgeries. You know, there's not, no real evidence that this is helping. And I do think that like, for example, you know, if you went into a, um, a surgeon and said, you know, I want to have my ear removed because I identify as a person with one ear and the surgeon said, no problem, I'll take your money here, let's have the surgery. Well, I, I would argue if we're dealing with adults here, I don't think that should be illegal um, because I just, you know, I stick to my principles on this. I think it's your body and you have a right to do it. However, it is insane, and I think in, in, a, uh, in a sane society, what we would hope is that, that that doctor, that surgeon goes, no, 
I am not removing your ear simply because you identify as a person with one ear. I will, however, be very happy to recommend a good shrink because that's like kind of the appropriate response to that. So in other words, I don't think that um, I don't think the law should regulate adult behavior. I do think we should try to create a society that where there are some sane boundaries that other adults have. I certainly don't think we should encourage people's delusions. Um, but anyway, all that's just kind of my take on this in terms of like the law regulating like every aspect of adults being transgender. Like if you're going to like try to regulate whether men can wear dresses or not. I mean, I think that's just silly and there's no, uh, <laughs> you're, it's not going to work. Let's just say, and it'd be silly to try and you'll probably end up with much worse problems as a result. Anyway, all of that aside, that's not really what this was about. That's not really what I wanted to talk about. Um, but what I did want to uh, talk about was this clip uh, in response to a question that my buddy Ben asked. Let's play it and, and take a listen. Hey, thanks for coming, guys. I've been a fan of both of you for a long time. Mostly Brad, though. Um, <laughs> hey, there's one. We got one. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, the reason I'm a libertarian is because government is inherently a monopoly on violence that will always further accumulate more wealth and power no matter what you do. So having said that, as this, my question is for Michael. Uh, as the size of government has grown, so has the acceptance of alternative or degenerate lifestyles on a systemic scale. Culture and the legal system reflect this. Uh, how can you recognize this fact while believing that simply using the state to fight this behavior in the legal system will lead to the necessary cultural change to eradicate it from public life? Yeah. So let's pause it right there before we even get to the, uh, the answer. Uh, the excellent question, Ben. Very well said. An absolute excellent question. Um, and I think that if nothing else, even if um, uh, right-winger types are going to argue for like a top-down solution, a legal solution to some of these problems, then I think they're wrong and I'll get into that. But I think you have to fundamentally recognize that this is a, a deep-rooted cultural issue, you know? And it, if you're not addressing that problem, you're really not going to solve anything. And of course, as Ben points out that, you know, like, hey, let's take a look at this as the government has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. This problem has gotten worse and worse and worse. Now, why is that? Might there be a relation there? And of course, I'm going to argue that there is. But first, let's give uh, Michael Knowles a chance to respond. The government hasn't just grown. I guess that's the misconception at the heart of this. Yes, obviously, we're a much bigger country now, 330 million people. The federal government is much more powerful than it was some 200 years ago. But in, in other ways, the government has weakened. In other ways, the, the ability of local governments to control their own communities and set standards, that's weakened considerably. The ability of school boards to set curricula now is, is quite uh, controversial. The, the rights of states have completely gone away. The, the states essentially have no real power anymore if they ever disagree with the federal government. So once again, I don't think this is an issue just of government getting really big or government getting really small. Conservatives have never supported small government. It's not, it's not possible for a country of 330 million people with a global empire to have a small government. What we can have is a limited government. So we want government to be within its natural and proper limits. And so when we're talking about the limits of the government, especially in a self-government such as ours, we have this question, do we have the political right to set certain standards? Are our rights merely the individual licenses to pursue whatever delusional and depraved <laughs> sexual identities that we, that we want to pursue or any other kind of fantastical ideas? Or do we have an exalted freedom that will suppress some of our lower appetites but will give us a flourishing community? That, that latter idea was the idea that has animated our country, that made our country great, that made our whole civilization great. As we've lost that, the government's gotten all out of whack, as you described, and the country's gone to pot. That was an admirable insight. Uh, all right, let's uh, um, let's respond to all this. So I I thought I found this to be a kind of like shockingly um, shallow analysis, and and one built off kind of critical errors or omissions at least. So Michael Knowles, first of all, I I just someone will have to explain to me the distinction between small government and limited government. Um, <laughs> If a government is limited, then presumably it's limited from growing into areas that are off limits, making it smaller. 
Um, so I, I, that is just a distinction without a difference at all. But he kind of says like, well, in some ways the government has gotten much bigger, but in other ways it hasn't. And yes, the federal government has expanded tremendously, but the ability of local communities to set standards and state governments and local governments has, has been tremendously weakened. And he almost puts that out there as if these are two things that just happened. Like they both just happened. So on one hand, this happened. On the other hand, this happened. And seemingly doesn't seem to recognize that they are clearly related. It's not as if coincidentally, as the federal government grew larger and larger and larger, local communities also at the same time, coincidentally, lost more and more of their authority. It's like, no, it was undermined by the federal government. That's what happened. The federal government came in and stripped them of these powers and said, we'll be making these decisions in Washington, D.C. So those two things are completely related. So it would seem to me um, quite self-evident that if what you want is for local communities to have more autonomy, then what you need is to have far less power in Washington, D.C., and that power returned to local communities. That, I think that's just obvious, and it's, it, it was bizarre to me to hear him talk about that, these things that are so obviously connected, and say it as if they were just two things that happened to occur. Then he also mentions that, you know, you can't have a small government with uh, our, the size of our population um, and a global empire, which is, th that is correct. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. You can't have a global empire that has a small government. You need a pretty big government to rule the world. But that seems to lead to a question that Michael Knowles doesn't even seem to address. It's almost just like, well, that's a given. That's a given that we're the global empire, and so therefore we can't have a small government. And, of course, the question that one should be asking themselves is, ought we be a global empire? And if you're talking about the original, as he says, like, well, uh, forget his exact words, the original ideas that animated this great country, well, they sure as hell weren't being a global empire. In fact, um, all of our founders, to a man, I mean, they disagreed about a lot of things. They all agreed the last thing you want to be is a global empire. And if we are a global empire, then this experiment here has failed. So it's, you know, it's kind of amazing to hear him say that. And not recognize that, yeah, that is actually the core of the problem here. All right, guys, let's take a moment and thank our sponsor for today's show, which is Small Batch Cigars. Many years ago, buying cigars online wasn't as easy as we've made it with Small Batch Cigars. While you could find a great selection, you never knew how the cigars were treated before they arrived on your doorstep. The process was less than ideal, and many dry cigars were shipped the cheapest and slowest way possible. Andrew set out to revolutionize the experience in 2012 and reverse engineer it, starting with how we would want to receive cigars in the mail. He wanted lightning fast shipping on every order that was absolutely free. He also wanted Bavetta packs included in every box along with an abundance of bubble and plastic wrap to reduce damage. It needed to be as simple as finding what you want and knowing it would arrive quickly and safely. Small Batch were the first online vendors to provide free shipping on every order with a free Brevetta pouch in every package to ensure freshness. Customers also earn 5% reward points on almost every order with very few exceptions like their limited cigar of the month clubs. They offer much more than just an incredible selection of rare, hard to find and limited edition cigars. For instance, this is America's favorite online tobacconist because they offer the best customer experience on the planet. The customer service that every cigar enthusiast deserves. Problem 10 is the promo code that will get you a, that will get you 10% off plus 5% rewards points. Free shipping on every order. Almost every order delivered in two to three days. Free Brevetta packs included with every purchase. The most thorough packaging in the industry. You also earn 5% rewards points. You want it? You got it. It's right here. Smallbatchcigar.com. That's where you got to go. They have been the destination for boutique cigar enthusiasts for over a decade now, servicing tens of thousands nationwide. Small batch cigars of Maximar Unlimited Cigars, providing the same luxurious cigar experience to their brick and mortar in South Carolina to enthusiasts from coast to coast. Go check them out. Smallbatchcigars.com. Promo code PROBLEM10 for 10% off plus 5% rewards points. 
Almost every order in the continental United States is delivered within two to three days. All right, let's get back into the show. The the thing when I say that right-wingers need to learn their libertarian lesson is this. Giant super states always, always, always work to undermine all of the things that Michael Knowles claims to care about. They're always going to work to undermine uh, communities, religion, family, and tradition. And the reason is very simple, because all of those things are a hedge against big government. That's what, you look at any of them, any giant super state, they always try to undermine these cultural traditions, because these are the things that check you against state power. They don't like um, a, a society of devout religious people, because if you're like a devout Christian, then it's much less likely that you view Barack Obama as a god because you already have a god. If you have a strong family, then it's much less likely that you're going to be dependent on the government because you have a family you can be dependent on if you hit hard times. If you have a strong community, you don't really need a welfare state because communities tend to take care of each other and they know much better about who's actually, you know, like out of work because they're just a lazy bum and who's out of work because, you know, they fell on hard times or, you know, they have a legitimate issue or something like that. There's local communities who know the people within their community make these decisions much better than a federal government hundreds of miles away that gives the lazy bum and the guy who's actually falling on hard times the exact same handout, thus incentivizing you to be a lazy bum. Um, but this is the, the direct, like, the, the relationship is so direct here. It's not a coincidence that as the government grows bigger and bigger, the culture falls apart more and more. And man, if conservatives and right-wingers do not recognize this, then they fail to recognize this at their own peril. This is the whole game. This is the whole game here. The more the government comes in, it crowds out communities, uh, churches, localities, um, and traditional norms. You know, if you just think, if you remove the government from the picture, why is it that these, like, these traditional uh, norms were traditional norms. Why, why would there be a tradition of getting married before you have kids? Well, because it's much harder to raise a kid on your own. It's much easier to do it if you have someone there who will help support you. However, if the government comes in and says, we'll support you if you're out on your own, you now disincentivize the traditional incentives. And this is true over and over and over again. Every inch of government from social security, which came in and uh, like basically overtook the old retirement plan, which used to be your kids would take care of you. You're incentivized to have kids to treat them fairly decently so that when they're adults, they want to take care of you. Well, now the government's going to force you to, to, you know, pay in your whole life. And so your that incentive is pretty much gone. Of course, the welfare state creates all of these incentives. And and I think more than that, there was something I was talking about this uh, uh, quite a bit in my um, in in my speech that I gave in uh, in New York City at this Mises Caucus event just a few weeks ago. But there's also a big part of why the right wingers lost this country was because they went all in on George W. Bush, and this is really what started off the twentieth uh, the twenty first century, excuse me, on such a bad note. Is that? Basically, all the evangelical Christians in the country supported George W. Bush, and he was the biggest disaster in our country's recent history. And then they had no seat at the table. They were in no position to lecture uh, you know, the rest of America about how they were forgetting about their traditional norms. And they, they just lost all the, the, their entire seat at the table. I mean, who the hell were you to lecture about what Jesus would want when what you decided Jesus wanted was to slaughter a million Iraqis and hand us a financial uh, uh, crisis? It's, it's right-wingers and conservatives really need to learn this lesson. And unfortunately, far too, uh, far too uh, few of them have. Um, but this is the whole game. This is the whole game right here. It's this. If you want, you know, you want to save the Republic, you got to kill the empire. If you want to save uh, the, the tradition, you have, to, you have to drastically shrink the size and scope of government. It's the only way it's going to happen. 
because this is what's undermining it. And no, you're not going to keep the government this big and then change its incentives around to be pro-family and pro-religion or any of these pro, you know, pro-traditional norms because that doesn't benefit a super state. It doesn't benefit them. This is why, like, you'll never, you never heard like Stalin or Hitler urging all of his people to go to church. They weren't looking for you to go worship something else. They were looking for you to worship them because that's how, that's how they maintain their power. Because the whole thing is that government is all an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. It's a fugazi, right? There's no government. It's a construct. There's no, I mean, there's buildings and there's men with guns and then there's men in suits who give those men with guns their orders, but there isn't a government. It's not a real thing. It's just something we believe in, you know? It's a social construct. But you, it, it requires that you really believe in it. You have to believe in their perceived like authority to rule or the whole thing doesn't work. This is why they're so upset about January 6th. It's not because some windows were broken. They're not upset that some windows were broken, which they have an endless amount of money that they can print to replace the windows. It's because these people dared to claim that the, you know, the sacrament of democracy wasn't properly executed and therefore this government is, isn't legitimate and they spit on the face of its perceived legitimacy. They're farting on desks. The smashing windows thing is symbolic. They didn't respect the capital. You can actually listen to this. If you listen to like what like uh, people on cable news and stuff and the corporate press were saying, they, I think we've played some of the clips before on the show, but they'll actually say things like, this is a holy building. You know, <laughs> like they'll let you know right now, this is our religion. It's this, it's believing in this thing, the state. It's just an idea. It's not real. And so they need you to believe in that. And the more that you have strong families and religious communities, you just believe in something else. You, you believe in a different thing that's not that. So they're always going to work to undermine what you care about. And, of course, they're always going to do their best to pit people against each other because that also helps them rule. It's a tactic. Divide and conquer. It's as old as man. I guarantee you that divide and conquer tactics are as old as, like, the first tribe <laughs> that humans ever had. It will always exist. But the more people you want to rule, the more important that tactic is going to be. And this is why we're even talking about the transgender thing to begin with, because it's a great way to pit people against each other. A lot of lessons in here that the Michael Knowles types really need to learn. And I'm hoping at some point some of them learn it. All right. That's the episode for today. See you guys in Chicago. Catch you next time. Peace. Peace.